You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, August 3rd, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. So, Kara, guess what the four of us did over the weekend? Oh, my God. Oh, and you were and you were missed. I saw photos, and they were epic. <laughs> yeah, we had a tour of a re- a replication of the Desilu set of the Enterprise, on which you know Star Trek, the original series, was filmed. And I enjoyed it a lot more than even I thought I would. Which is, I agree. It's almost a little yeah. embarrassing how much I enjoyed it. <laughs> Steve, walking around that final corner, the last set we saw was the bridge, and it of was course. it was almost. A spiritual experience. It <laughs> Whoa, was slow down there. Seriously, yeah, come on, Jay, back me up on this. Well, yeah, I mean, for people like us, we grew up watching Star Trek. I mean, it was we had VHS tapes of the episodes off of the TV, and we would just watch them all the time. Or even just the reruns were rebroadcast. I mean, I think we basically watched five episodes a week for our entire youth. You know, just <laughs> every night. Absorbing. It was just part of the evening. If Star Trek's on it, whatever, we watch it. The great thing about the tour, one of the great things, is that it's not just that they rebuilt the sets that they used. They rebuilt, really, the studio itself because it's laid out exactly how the actors experienced it, going around one corner, experiencing this and that. It it, it took on the exact shape of how it was laid out in the in the actor's realm and how they actually worked. Um, so it... You felt a little more immersed, I think, than maybe, and Steve, maybe this is why we both enjoyed it a little bit more. I don't know. I felt more immersed in the Star Trek world than than perhaps I thought I would. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you have to be able to, like, walk from engineering down the corridor into the sick bay or whatever. You, know, you need to be yep. able to do that while you're filming. So the, the, the entire the, – the bridge was separate, but the rest of the set was all connected. You could walk on camera anywhere on the ship. Although it's funny, there's one corridor. There's literally one corridor. That's what got me. The one corridor. Think of all the scenes in Star Trek where someone's running down a corridor, a, you know, or or a different corridor or whatever. So what they did was they would film you running down a corridor. Then they would go through. They would change the things on the walls. What do they call the signage? Those? Plantons the, yeah. and the signage. Mm-hmm. And then you would run the opposite direction, and it just seemed like a completely. And of course, we, it fooled us. I, I was shocked when I learned it was one powerful. hallway. But the cool yeah. thing, guys, that set they built the set from the original blueprints. The guy guys that built this set were meticulous meticulous the funny thing is is this set is very much so built better than the original set oh yeah better than the original set because first of all they're using better materials today than than ever existed before like they didn't have the computer technology but even like the wood products and all that are are definitely better the paints are better Mm -hmm. yeah i was gonna ask you about that because a lot of even, you know, modern sets right now, it's kind of a, a secret of Hollywood. When you actually go visit a television set up close and personal, everything's really chintzy. Like it just doesn't feel as amazing when you're up close to the set because a lot of stuff is like glue and cardboard. Yeah. It just doesn't play that way on TV. So I was wondering if this felt more like a TV set or it felt more like what it should have. No, if like. you did not look up, you were on the Enterprise. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Right. You were, yeah, mm-hmm. you were, you were on the Enterprise. I mean, it was still a set. I mean, 
when you, when you look real, real close, uh, you could see little things here and there. I mean, it, but still, it it looked wonderful. And I think it was HD ready, right, 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 Jay? Because the, the, when they transitioned from standard definition to HD, a lot of TV shows had to redo all their sets because their sets could not hold up yeah. to HD. So this mm-hmm. this set was exquisite. It, it was exquisite, without a doubt. This set blew away the original set. They were saying that the original set was being held up by sandbags and all this. I mean, <laughs> it, this this was you, the real deal. Of course. The original set in the 60s, they said you could not touch the walls. If you went to go touch a wall or lean on a wall, your hand would go through it. <laughs> Don't touch the wall. Yeah, they, that's they, the, they, that was the original, and they even made this one better so that you could actually you know, not get in trouble that way. They call those the, the flats. You know, the, the, the walls are made of this really thin wood. Um, so there, it is all light construction, of course. It's not like you, know, you can't throw someone against the wall in there. But I'll tell you what. We go through the whole thing. We were taking tons of pictures, and you can go to our Facebook page and and uh, we post some pictures up. Yeah, we took tons and tons. We had everybody that took pictures that day. We all collected them, but we go through the whole thing, and we were just going out of our mind because it was so much fun, and we were reenacting stuff and fake fighting and all this. Then we we get to the bridge. You know, two hours later, Mostly we fake. finally make our way to the bridge. The bridge to me felt like I was in a dream. It was surreal. Like I couldn't believe I was there. That's how crazy it was. Oh my god! And I think I think the pictures tell the story. One of our guests who came with us commented that, in hindsight, looking at the pictures, in some it some way popped even more than being there and witnessing yeah. it. That that's a testimony to the quality and time and effort that these people have put into this work. The other thing, though, that I, I'm glad that they did this, it made the bridge even more special. They updated the graphics that you see on all the, the various computer monitors all over the bridge. They weren't these static images that were that were they were okay and kind of cool for Star Trek, but they updated them to make them a little bit animated, higher resolution, and I think that added like this And extra, more detail. It, they had, had more detail. detail. That wasn't there. It, it, just an extra veneer of, of awesomeness. So it still looks like the graphics on the bridge of the Enterprise, but better and and holds up clearer to per you know to in person inspection. If you are a Star Trek nerd, even a tiny fraction as much as we are, I recommend you make try to make an effort to get there. This is in Ticonderoga, New York. If you could get there. Uh, it's definitely worth you know the, the twenty five bucks for the for the ticket. Oh my god, yeah. Like. Star Trek, yeah, Star Trek mm-hmm. And even if you're not a fan, we had a few weird people that we came, that came with us that didn't, weren't even into Trek or had, hadn't hardly seen any of it. They had a blast. So if you go with some people that, who are big fans, you will just have fun laughing at them the whole time. Well, look, we already talked about it. We're, we're all going again and, um, we'll do it again. We'll, we'll, we'll have people, uh, SGU listeners be able to join us. We could do a silent bid. I would too. And cause we could do it better this time even. even oh, well, that's better. the thing. Now that we've been there, we know like we, there, there's a million pictures that we didn't take cause I didn't think of them until after we already went through the whole thing. And we need Kara to join us. Kara. Yes. I need a costume. You you no have it. Problem. We, we no have worries. one waiting for you. you. You have extra costumes just lying around, don't you? We, we do, do now. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had to go prepared, yeah. All right, uh, Bob, you're going to do a Forgotten Superheroes of Science. Yes, for this week's Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I'm going to talk about Elizabeth Rona, 1890 to 1981. She was a highly regarded nuclear chemist whose expertise at manipulating the radioactive element polonium profoundly affected her field, and she even contributed to the Manhattan Project because of it. While researching Rona, it was hard to separate the words Rona and polonium. They are, they were very 
difficult to disentangle. So great was their impact on polonium research. Um, polonium is, is, of course, a radioactive element, and it's it's especially nasty. Um, this stuff does not it does not take much. I think uh, just a couple grams could potentially wipe out millions of people. This is really scary stuff. Really, a couple of grams would wipe out a million people. It, it was. I was shocked that I think it was a gram, a gram or two. Rona worked with Irene Curie, which is daughter of Marie, uh, both of whom, mother and daughter, won a Nobel Prize. Uh, she worked with her and some other luminaries in the field, and uh, she became internationally recognized as an expert at isolating and preparing polonium. Um, her reputation was noticed by members of the Manhattan Project, who asked her to consult on polonium extraction, and she even gave them specifications uh, to use in their uh, plutonium plants, and they proved critical for for the implosion type nuclear weapon design that was ultimately used in the Fat Man bomb. So she uh, contributed some critical insights into that. Um, another interesting uh, side of her career was the promotion of nuclear safety standards. One of these ways was through the Atoms for Peace program. And she knew this well, of course, after doing so many years of research. Uh, but she, she also had some close calls. Uh, during her career, she suspected that these elements, uh, were, were, you know, not safe. Though everyone, almost everyone at the time was downplaying the danger. They just did not know how bad this stuff was. Uh, but yet she still asked for protective masks and gear and, uh, it was denied. They, they refused to, to do it. So convinced, uh, were they of the, uh, of, uh, the safety of this stuff. But she bought her own protective gear anyway. Very smart move. And she was convinced that the mask saved her life when there was a radioactive explosion uh, which contaminated her laboratory. So her efforts led to safer laboratories and increased radiation safety standards throughout the world. So uh, very impactful um, in many, many ways. So remember Elizabeth Rona, mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing polonides and their rhombohedral beta form. Yeah, so Bob, I, lo- I looked it up. Toxicologists estimate that one gram of polonium could be enough to kill 50 million people and to make another 50 million people sick. Uh, You you remember that uh, Litvinenko, yeah, was was murdered probably with polonium. That could have been accomplished with less than a microgram. What? Who the hell would want to handle that stuff? I know. Where is this stuff, though? Well, you can find it in ore, uh, but you would need a ton of... Of ore, of spe- of specific ore to get. Let me see if I remember. Point zero 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 one gram uh, grams of polonium. It's not you. If you're going to collect polonium, that's not the way to do it. You you would you would bombard elements with with like neutrons and stuff, and you could you could get a, get it much faster that way. Um, but don't forget, guys, if somebody comes across a gram of polonium, it's not like you can go into the middle of Manhattan and release it and kill everybody. It, it doesn't, it's not, it wouldn't be that easy. It could potentially, there's enough poison in it that if you directly administered it to, to many millions of people, it could potentially kill them. But it's not like you're just going to release it. And, yeah. And, it, it, right. That's optimally, if, right. And right. you have to, you have to ingest it. It has to, it needs contact with your inner tissue oh, okay. in order to be that right. toxic. And yeah. if, it, if you put it on your skin right now, you would probably be okay. But if you had a cut, that's how, it would, that's one way that it would get in and you would be in deep shit. Oof. You died of moita. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Evan, this is is a funny item. It's interesting on many levels, but the idea of a billionaire sucking Mm -hmm. blood out of young people to to live forever. (laughs) I would, I would do it. 
interesting. Yes. Well, tell us what's going on here. Peter Thiel, yes, billionaire investor, capital venturist Peter Thiel, as the headline reads, is very, very interested in young people's blood. <laughs> And the subtitle reads, The contrarian venture capitalist believes transfusions may hold the key to his dream of living forever. And he is apparently one of many wealthy Silicon Valley folk who have expressed an interest in life extension techniques, including parabiosis, or at least a form of parabiosis. Now, if you never heard about parabiosis, or Peter Thiel for that matter, uh, parabiosis could possibly yield positive results in which an older person would benefit via blood transfusions from the benefits found in younger blood. Now, the term parabiosis refers to experiments that were first conducted in 1864 by physiologist Paul Burt. He cut the skin of two mice and then sewed them together, <laughs> basically. Attach them. And when they healed together, these two mice, their blood vessels combined enough so, so that they essentially shared their circulatory systems. This technique became popular for studying physiology. Researchers could discover if blood factors affected some physiological properties. Now, in an interview uh, that Thiel gave from 2015, he said the following. He said, I'm not convinced yet we've found a single panacea that works. It's possible there exists single point things that could work. I'm looking into parabiosis stuff, which I think is really interesting. This is where they did the young blood into older mice, and they found that it had a massive rejuvenating effect. And so that, that's one, again, is one of these very odd things where people had done these studies in the 1950s and then got dropped altogether. And I think there's a lot of these things that have been strangely underexplored. So what he's referring to there is that in the 1950s, researchers had connected old mice to young mice to determine the effects, and they found out that the old mice experienced some, well, what they, I guess, described as rejuvenating effects. So uh, the biomarkers in the older mice showed that their youth sort of returned, that these mice lived longer. However, the younger mice didn't fare out so well for them. They had shorter lifespans. So I don't know. It's almost sort of this parasite relationship going on in, in, a, in a weird way. But the experiments died out in the 1970s. Uh, researchers had pretty much learned what they could from the technique and maybe taken it as far as they could. But uh, being science on the fringe and all, it has recently started to get attention again from mainstream researchers. And there are multiple clinical trials underway in humans in the United States and even more advanced studies in China and Korea. Yeah, but to be clear, those studies are not in parabiosis. They are in in transfusing plasma. Yeah. Which is so not they, exactly they parabiosis, and, and you can't necessarily extrapolate the results of one to the other. Right. Yeah, I understand, I understand that. And and they do sort of casually intermix these the, the term parabiosis yeah. with the blood transfusion experience, but that's really not what's going on. I mean, think about it. We can't have people walking around with other people sewn to them. That would be socially awkward, not to mention yeah. You know, it's it's experimental. There's no, I don't. They they've yet to come. You know, it doesn't extrapolate the experiments in mites. You can't, as we know, extrapolate that to what could be benefits in humans, even at the simple level of blood transfusions. Yeah. So that, but that's where they're. That's where these companies nowadays are turning their attention. And one company in particular is called Ambrosia, and it's earned Teal's attention. Ambrosia is running parabiotic experiments. Uh, they're using the term. And have been doing so for the last 10 years or so. Now, according to their founder, uh, Stanford-trained physician Jesse Carmazin, and he said that while the mechanisms at play aren't totally understood, a young organism's blood not only contains all sorts of proteins that improve cell function, 
somehow it prompts the recipient's body to increase its production of those proteins. That That's speculative at best, I think. There's a couple layers going on here. So one is the difference between, you know, true parabiosis where you're sharing a circulatory system versus plasma transfusion. With parabiosis, you know, it's more than just that, okay, there are proteins going from the young uh, body to the old body, but it's also that the young body is doing a lot of the metabolic heavy lifting, right? It's it's supporting all of the organs. It's clearing all the toxins. It's oxygenating the blood, you know? So how much of the benefit is due to that versus just, you know, higher levels of hormones and certain proteins that are, that are affecting the older recipient? But right, all the other things happening in the younger mice, all its organs and everything else. You know, how, how do you how do you know if it's just the blood or if it's everything else having to do with the younger yeah. mice? Yeah, but having said that, again, the experiments in the fifties and since then have do have shown that there are some factors in the blood, like oxytocin, for example, and uh, and certain proteins that do things like st- uh, stimulate muscle growth or stimulate the stem cells to function more. Uh, so that's plausible. It's not crazy, it, you know, biologically speaking, that a transfusion from a 20-year-old into a 60-year-old could have some medical effect. But what we don't know is what is that effect? What's the net effect? And if if is that just in healthy people? Is it just in disease states? How long does it last? How much do you have to transfuse? And are there any side effects? So some researchers expressed concerns. It's like, yeah, whenever you start stimulating stem cells, eh, you got to worry mm-hmm. that you're going to increase cancer. the risk of cancer. Yeah, because now you're stim- – there's a, you know, there may be – there's a reason why stem cells slow down as we get older. We can't really – maybe we can't handle more active stem cells. We don't have the immune system to, to surveillance to, to handle. Whatever. We don't know. It could be that we're just going to be generating a lot of, you know, cancers in, in older recipients, or it may just have an insignificant effect. You know, it may, may be that you need the continuous parabiosis to really get a decent effect. All of this is unknown. What's interesting is that now that it's sort of out there in the public consciousness, it's certain to become, in my opinion, I predict it's going to become just a snake oil product. It's going to oh, be companies sure. selling transfusions of plasma from young donors and making all kinds of health claims based on this preliminary evidence where we're actually 20 years away from knowing what the actual effects are. Um, also, you didn't mention the fact that Ambrosio, the, the study that they're doing is patient-supported, which means that you have to pay them $8,000 to get into the study. That's what? usually a red flag, right? Oh, my what, But you, you're talking about – being a um, an older person that is going to receive yes. the young blood. Okay, yes. just to clarify. Right. So what does that mean? It means you're not getting a placebo because no one's going to pay $8,000 to get a placebo. And uh, you have a lot of reason to want to think it's going to work. Yeah. Plus, yeah. plus it's it, essentially this becomes a way of selling a treatment to patients without needing FDA approval or anything. You're just right. doing it as part of a quote-unquote wow. research. It's an end run around regulation. It's like Stanislaw, Stanislaw Brzezinski has been doing this for years. He's always doing studies of his antineoplastons. He doesn't publish anything, but it's just uh, a bullshit way of selling his treatment to patients. But it's generally considered to be unethical to charge patients for participation in, in clinical research. So I think they should just completely ban that practice. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't yeah. seem like any good could really come from that. I, I didn't even know they were even allowed to collect uh, blood 
without FDA approval or some governing body. Well, you uh, can't use donor blood oversight. if you're selling it. You can't use donor blood, but they do have to get you know some kind of approval for the way they're collecting blood to make sure they're using approved procedures and equipment, et cetera. But, but you know, then giving the blood to the older participants, yeah. that's the that's the part. But it is it is hard to avoid the supervillain comparison, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> feeding your young blood to the old billionaire so he could eke out a few more years. It's just can't, yeah, hard to get away from that image. Yeah. All right, Carrie, you're going to tell us about electroceuticals. Yeah, you know, I feel like there's kind of a future tech theme on the show this week. And one of the things that fits nicely into that is a press release that was just delivered a couple of days ago by GlaxoSmithKline, the British uh, pharmaceutical company, and Google's life sciences spinoff, Verily. Actually, it's owned by Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. But Verily is their life sciences uh, department or, or company within their companies. And together, they are jointly funding a new venture called Galvani Bioelectronics. It's named for, of course, Luigi Galvani, um, who discovered what he called animal electricity in 1780. if we remember, he did those crazy experiments where he could electrify dead bodies and, and kind of bring them back to life because at that point we didn't really understand the electrical component of the way that neurons and excitable tissue like the heart and muscles interact. Um, but anyway, Galvani uh, Bioelectronics wants to focus on this kind of field, I guess you could call it, known as electroceuticals. I, I found other euphemisms across the literature, bioelectric medicine, neuroengineering, and also Bob's favorite, nanobots. Um, yeah, baby. And so the idea here is a pharmaceutical intervention or a pharmaceutical type intervention, but instead of using drugs, it uses a tiny, tiny machine that can have some sort of disease preventing, disease fighting effect. In this case, what they're really interested in focusing on are almost like these little collars. They're these little sheaths that would wrap around a nerve fiber and either induce an electrical pulse or prevent an electrical pulse in the hoping that that could have a whole host of effects on um, the downstream cells or the downstream muscles. They're mostly talking about this um, in terms of efferent nerve fibers. If you remember, we did those terms afferent and efferent, or as mm-hmm. Steve calls them, afferent and efferent. Um, yep. <laughs> but these, these nerve fibers that go from the brain down to either your muscles or a, another part of your body. And it would actually change the effect of the nervous impulse, either by preventing it or imp- increasing it. Um, this is not brand new. Glasgow Smith Klein has actually been working on this for quite a few years, and they pl- they published a paper in Nature in 2013 called Drug Discovery, a Jumpstart for Electroceuticals, where they were trying to look at some different types of electrical impulse medicine in order to modulate these different neural circuits. And also, Google's, um, or I should say Alphabet's daughter company, um, Verily, has been working in partnership with some other companies on these kinds of uh, electronic medical interventions, these biomedical technologies, like a contact lens. You guys might have remembered hearing about this a few years ago that would have a blood sugar sensor in it so that diabetics could wear this contact lens and keep tabs on their insulin levels. So... 
Yeah, it's. I think it's an interesting idea. They're putting forth 540 million pounds, that's 715 million dollars over the next seven years into this venture. And they really hope that within the next few years, um, their goal is by 2023, they would like to be ready to submit for regulatory approval of these specific bioelectronic medicines that wrap around the nerves and then stimulate them. Steve, I'm interested. How um, skeptical are you or how hopeful are you that this is a realistic intervention? I mean, I like the idea mm-hmm. of using electrical currents as a way of altering, you know, body function as something other than um, like the pharmaceutical approach. You're binding to receptors typically. Yeah, but, where you have all these different side effects and downstream effects potentially. But also with this, I mean, you're altering, you know, physiology. There's going to be, if there's mm-hmm. effects, there's going to be side effects. But what I couldn't find out in any of the literature that I read about this is what the hell they're going to do with it. And I think that they're deliberately playing, uh, keeping their cards close to the vest so that yeah. they wouldn't say, this is the specific application we're going to do. We're going to attach these things to this nerve bundle. And when we stimulate this nerve bundle, it's going to have this physiological effect, which is going to impact this disease or that condition. Nothing like that. Until I hear that, I really have no idea how to evaluate the clinical plausibility of it. All they're talking about is the technology itself. It's like saying, we're going to develop drugs that are going to bind to receptors on cells. And what are you going to do with these drugs? We're not going to tell you what we're going to do with those drugs. They're right? just describing pharm- pharmacology, but without saying – we're going to bind to, you know, beta receptors on these cells in the heart. And it's going to have this specific effect. So until I get to that level of information, I, I really don't know what to think about it. It's true. It's pretty dangerous. And it seems like in all the press releases and in all the literature, they just, they're very vague. Chronic conditions like diabetes, arthritis, and asthma maybe down the line could be treated, but they don't really talk about how or what specific application it's going to have. Like many technologies that may be useful, but not for the things that they imagine. Imagine it will be. Yeah. You know? But yeah. We'll, again, we'll have to wait and see. All right, let's move on. Carol, let me ask you a question. What do you think about the female orgasm? <laughs> um, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're a fan. I'm a fan. I, yeah. I have them from time to time. <laughs> um, I'm a fan as well. I'm, I'm jealous, yeah. actually. I think life would be quite uh, depressing if the female orgasm did not exist. That's, All right, that's Jay, and sure. Jay, I know you have no idea what we're talking about, but just pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right. So a, a news item that has been very popular on social media this week is a study looking at potentially the origins of the female orgasm. Uh, so there's a few layers here I want to talk about. It's very interesting. Here is the Guardian headline, Mystery of the Female Orgasm May Be Solved. What? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, <laughs> what, was, what was mysterious about it? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I'll, I'll get to that. One thing that interests me, I'm very interested in journalistic narratives, right? So, journalists tend to, especially mediocre journalists, which is by definition most, but clearly not all. There are some good journalists out there, but still, especially with science stories, they, they follow one of a very few narratives. So, one narrative that we know of is that scientists are baffled, right? Another mm-hmm. one is the there's a raging controversy whether the yeah. controversy is real or not, and then another one is mystery solved. Right, 
There was this, <laughs> there was this huge mystery, but scientists have finally solved it. Case closed. Yeah, it's, it's funny because it, you see it on the cover of The Sun also. Mystery. Oh, yeah. The Sun, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wait, National Enquirer has a new headline as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, it's not, it's not that scientists don't solve mysteries. It's that though, when you start with the narrative, then that really spins the story to fit the narrative. So they always exaggerate how much we didn't know and exaggerate how much we now know. You know what I mean? Like the new information. So you could take any incremental new discovery and then pretend like, oh, we knew absolutely nothing and now this explains everything, you know. So I hate that narrative. It's rarely uh, accurate. Uh, and I do think a lot of the journalism about this has fallen into that. There's the other layer here is that the notion that there was a mystery about the the female orgasm itself, I think, is a scientific myth, but a very, very common one. So here's the question. Scientists have not been able to to demonstrate that the female orgasm has any adaptive or selective benefit. It's not necessary for to become pregnant. It's not necessary for pair bonding. A lot of the times women don't get orgasms from from regular sex and they can get orgasms from many other things other than sex. Uh, so it doesn't seem to really be a good correlation there. And so that was the quote unquote mystery. Well, then why do women have orgasms? But the problem is it's only a mystery if you – a fall for the hyper-adaptationalist fallacy that everything biological has to have a specific purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And male, male nipples. Well, yeah, like male. <laughs> so one school of We're thought is that yeah. the female orgasm is the equivalent of male nipples, which essentially means that women have orgasms because men have orgasms. And it's just a developmental biology holdover. The clitoris is a developmental uh, analogy to the penis. And so because it's all the anatomy, you know, for the male orgasm is already there before the the sexes diverge developmentally, well, it's just a holdover. Women have have orgasms because, you know, for the same reason that men have nipples, right? It was a, it was selected for in men and the anatomy applies to women as well. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought is that there is some benefit. There's some specific benefit to the female orgasm. We just need to figure out what it is. Uh, the problem is scientists have not been able to demonstrate that it actually has any benefit that you say, you mean like benefit to reproduction? Benefit, yes, yeah, selective. Because <laughs> I was like, mm, it has benefits, I'll tell yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Psychologically speaking. <laughs> yeah, to, to, it actually has a, a selective benefit, something that you could select for that has an evolutionary advantage, right? Gotcha. Like, it, does it increase the probability of conception, for example? And the answer to, to that is no. So, this new study actually doesn't even look at either of those questions and, and doesn't take either of those approaches. It's not looking at at all whether or not the female orgasm in humans has any purpose or any advantage or any function. All they're looking at is the potential evolutionary roots of female orgasm in mammals. So they were basically exploring the the, the first train of thought that, that you mentioned before, that it's just a, it's kind of a holdover. No, no, the, no, no. The, their, their study is is tangential to all of that. So let me explain to what they were looking at. Uh, just because again, just because you're looking at the evolutionary roots doesn't mean it does or does not have a purpose today. So that's it's completely tangential. But let's back up a little bit. It turns out that the basal mammal, 
right? So the, the branch of the mammal tree had a type of ovulation that is triggered by sex, right? So for, for many mammals, it's a waste of resources for the females to ovulate all the time because they may have only rare opportunities to mate. And so they don't drop an egg on a monthly cycle. Rather, they drop an egg only when they have sex, which means that sex has to trigger dropping an egg. Isn't that too? Isn't that like too late though? Then you- no, the sperm hangs out for days. The eggs there, it's good. Oh, they'll, that's true. It they'll meet out for days. They'll, they'll meet true. in the fallopian Ooh. tubes, and then they'll get fertilized. And the hey, keep how going, are you? Keep hey, going down to the uterus. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> so that's in fact most branches, most mammals, you know, have that kind of ovulation, have that triggered ovulation. So the the idea here is that the female orgasm causes muscle contraction, causes hormonal spikes triggers the release of the egg. And so it's important for to increase the probability of ovulating and therefore getting pregnant. There are a couple of branches of mammals, including primates and rodents. So primates, obviously, including humans, where uh, they were much more social. And so the women, the females had much more continuous access to males basically having sex all the time. And so it Yay. made sense for them <laughs> to just ovulate on a cycle. So they ob- so like you know human females will ovulate once a month. It doesn't have to be triggered by anything. Therefore, the original purpose of the female orgasm, triggering ovulation, no longer existed. But it's a holdover, right? But it still doesn't mean that it's going to just magically disappear because it's no longer necessary. Kind of like an appendix. So I guess in that way, the female orgasm is vestigial. But doesn't mean it wasn't co-opted for something else. Uh. To support this, they they hypothesized that in mammals who need female orgasm to trigger ovulation, the clitoris is much closer to and might even be within the vagina so that it would be more stimulated during coitus. In in mammals that uh, have cyclical ovulation, the clitoris has moved farther away from the vagina, so it's less stimulated during copulation. And mm. and triggering mm-hmm. an orgasm from sex is is less common, is less assured. So that that was their hypothesis and what they looked at the they looked at comparative anatomy and it turns out that yeah that that those two things correlate in mammals that have triggered ovulation the clitoris is in the vagina mammals that have cyclical ovulation the clitoris has moved away from the the vagina why that happens is that that's a separate line of inquiry maybe to get it away from the urethra or whatever it's not really clear genetic um, drift but there, there was no selective pressure <laughs> to keep it in the vagina to, to, to basically to ensure that copulation would trigger an orgasm. That selective pressure went away. Um, so that supports their hypothesis because that of that comparative anatomy holds out. So that doesn't mean that doesn't serve any purpose because, you know, once a, a feature, a, a, you know, a piece of anatomy, a function or whatever, no longer serves the purpose for which it previously evolved, it's freed up, right? It's freed up to genetically drift, to go away, to be co-opted, to be used for something else. So it's possible that the, it's still possible that the, Orgasm, the female orgasm is just a vestigial holdover. It's possible that it's been co-opted to serve some other function, but not necessarily. Not everything has to serve a function. So no, no, basically none of them have held up over decades. No one's been able to prove that it's there's remarkable. any specific adaptation for it. it I, I think right now the parsimonious answer is that it's a vestigial holdover from 
are mammalian origins where you, know, where you had stimulated ovulation and not cyclical, cyclical ovulation, and there's no known current function. Uh, evolutionarily speaking, obviously, <laughs> I'm sure women are happy that they have one. <laughs> well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about another sponsor this week, Audible.com. You know how much I love Audible. It's such a fantastic place for downloading spoken word in so many different formats. But recently, I started listening to two different books on artificial intelligence, The Technological Singularity by Murray Shanahan and Surviving AI, The Promise and Peril of Artificial Intelligence by Callum Chase, two fascinating books that I recommend. And there's just so much out there. I'm just kills me that I'll never get to them all. (laughs) Yeah, like Bob mentioned, there is an unmatched selection of audiobooks, but not just audiobooks. There are original audio shows, news and comedy shows. It's your best source for all the entertainment you may need this summer when you're on the road. And Audible has an awesome app. It makes listening a breeze. Right, Bob? Do you use the (laughs) app? Of course. Yeah, it's cool. It just makes it easy to get to chapters and... You could speed it up and all that stuff, which makes it like, you know, if you want to hurry up and listen to something, you can listen to it double time. Best thing is you can access your books, your shows, your podcasts, your news, your comedy, anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone or your tablet. So you could start a 30-day trial and download your first audiobook for free. Go to audible.com slash skeptics to get started. That's audible.com slash skeptics. You get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. So, Jay, tell me about the status of private missions to the moon. The moon. I am, like, super psyched. So a company called Moon Express has applied to the FAA to gain permission to go beyond Earth orbit. Now, this is all due to Google's Lunar X Prize competition. Lunar X Prize competition is really awesome. So it was created in 2007, and it's there to encourage companies and organizations to create new technologies and the hope is that we'll have affordable access to the moon and then hopefully other destinations. You know, that's like just the, the starting point to uh, to humans really starting to explore our solar system. The Lunar X Prize is $30 million USD and will be awarded to one or more teams who successfully land a privately funded rover on the moon. The rover has to move 500 meters I guess in any direction, just has to travel 500 meters, and it also has to send back high-definition video and images. The X Prizes have inspired um, a lot of different things. And again, Google's doing this to get companies to invest in their own innovation to help start industries. You know, and I, they, they were doing an X Prize about autonomous cars, as an example. And, you know, and I think Google had a lot to do with the, the facts that we're going to have, the fact that we're going to have some success there very soon and start seeing these cars being sold. So Moon Express has plans to send a small single-stage spacecraft that will land on the moon by the end of 2017. Guys, it's 16 months away. We're going to have a little spaceship on the moon. Hopefully. Awesome. Yeah. Back yeah. to the moon. Very cool. I mean, we've sent unmanned probes to the moon. We've been doing that. So, I mean, that's that's not new. It, this is just the first private one. Yeah, but yeah. that's huge because it means that it's now reachable by private companies. It's not just yeah. popping something up in an orbit. I mean, this is a big deal, you know, landing something on the planet yeah, and absolutely. having to communicate back. So it's cool. Moon Express applied for approval from the, FD, uh, the FAA back in 2015. The FAA happens to be the, the governing body for the United States when it comes to this type of licensing. Other countries have to have another governing body give them licenses as well. There, There is something um, 
out there that globally I think that that each country has to give a license out. Well, there's now, the there's Outer the, Space Treaty. That, that's it. That yeah, the Outer Space Treaty. It requires that. that we have an organization that reviews and and regulates and licenses any private access to space. And but the funny thing it was is because there really wasn't anything put in place for this, we had NASA and the US Department of State and the White House and the Department of Defense and the Federal Communications Commission and the NOAA all participate in figuring out like how do we give someone a license to to leave Earth orbit? You know, how what do we what, what do they need what do we need to do here guys? That type of thing. So uh, the government now knows that they need to come up with like a standard list of requirements and a process and everything to it. And this this was the first company that asked for it. Now, the the thing that I found very encouraging was that the agencies weren't trying to just be jerks about it. They were really encouraged to give this license out. They wanted the company to get the license. So Moon Express, uh, the lander, you know, it's it's small. It's not a very big craft that they're planning on building. I think they're already in, in their build, of course, by now. And... What I found very interesting about it was they um, they added on more avionics to this to their ship, and they had to get rid of some weight. And they ended up using, of course, new materials that are available. But they also have a lot of three D printed parts on this, which it kind of brought into focus for me. Like three D printing, it, it's totally legit now. It's it's there. Oh, They're putting three sure. D parts on spacecraft, so that that shows you that three D printing has evolved quite a bit. So I uh, you know. Short little news item, just a heads up, like, look, private companies are going to start flying moon missions and we're going to start seeing companies go to the moon and, and you know, commerce is going to happen. You know, they're going to start bringing material back and, and it's going to be, we're at the very beginning of it right here, guys. It's space tourism. Yeah. The question is, is there going to be anything that a private company could do on the moon that will be financially self-sustaining? It will be profitable. Once yeah. once a company can make money by going to the moon, then it's definitely going to be mm-hmm. – it's going to happen. Of it's course, going to be self-sustaining. Yes. Right. It could mine H2. Okay, Kara, what's the word? Ooh, I love the word this week. The word this week was recommended by Dr. Janet Patton from Portland. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Patton, for the kind words. The word this week is – Mondegreen. Have you guys ever heard of a Mondegreen? No. I did when you sent it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I hadn't heard of it previously either. Now I want to use it all the time. So a Mondegreen is a word or a phrase that results from a mishearing of something that was said or sung. It's similar to a malapropism, but instead of you saying the wrong word, you hear the wrong word or phrase. So for example, just to distinguish the two, a malapropism would be like saying for all intensive purposes instead of saying for all (laughs) intents and purposes, which is very common. Right. Purpose. Yeah. Um, but a Mondegreen <laughs> would be mishearing, excuse me while I kiss this guy instead of excuse me while I kiss the sky. Oh, right. Or in Obama, Obama's Haze. Yeah. yeah right. um, so I remember the early days of the Internet after after chat rooms. But when videos were like only coded in flash, there was this site that I used to go to all the time called RatherGood.com. I'm not sure if it's still online, but they had a whole bunch of misheard lyric videos from the Beatles. Uh, She's got a chicken to ride. My baby donkey um, to Abba's <laughs> Jackie Chen's on me. Um, and they're really fun. <laughs> and so and we've seen this 
a lot in skeptic uh, mm-hmm. presentations as well. Michael Shermer did one. Um, Wiseman. Yeah, Richard Wiseman does one. And it's really funny. Um, the etymology of this is awesome. Since Mondegreen is a modern word. And uh, because of that, we know a lot about about where it came from. It was first coined by author Sylvia White in 1954. And the story goes that when White was a child, she misheard the lyrics of a famous Scottish ballad. The Scottish ballad actually went, Ye Highlands and Ye Lowlands, oh, where have you been? Thou how you slay the Earl of Murray and lay him on the green. But she heard, Thou how you slay the Earl of Murray and Lady Mondegreen. And it became uh. actually the stand-in for this uh for this experience. Mm-hmm. Lady Mondegreen. Yeah. Fascinating. Cool. Cool my, word. I one like of it. my favorite uh, stories about that is the the class of kindergarten students who thought they all had headlights. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so cute! And but gross. that so they're they're fitting it to the closest word that they already know. You yeah, know? So that, and our brain does right. that. Our brain hears sounds that it thinks is speech, and then tries to make the best match it can to that. And so this is just slotting it incorrectly, you know. And it, but it really <laughs> sounds like that to you. This it does, and especially if you animate it around it, or yeah. if you reinforce it over and over. You know, there's um there's some great videos online of the American Idol spinoffs in other countries where people are auditioning for American Idol, and they're not native English speakers, but they're sp- uh, singing English songs because, of course, a lot of American songs are popular around the world, and the Mondegreens that they sing are too much. Oh God, it's so funny the phrases that they think that the singers are saying because a lot of them don't make sense because they've heard the sounds of English language, but grammatically, it's just a bunch of words strung together. Right. It's great. Yeah. Okay, Jay, who's that noisy? So last week, I played this noisy. Any guesses? I love it. Oh, yeah. This is the one I said sounded like the American terminal at LAX. That's so creepy. I love it. I mean, you know, previously you did like the noise that's left over when you remove the 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 MP3 file. So it kind of has the same kind of vibe where – Stripping, yeah. Yeah, it's some kind of electronic voices in some context, but I don't know the details. So this is is Tesla's spirit coil. Whoa! So, yeah, I, it's uh, um, the company or the old inventor? The old inventor, Nikola sorry. Tesla. Okay. Nikola Tesla's spirit coil. You know, he was experimenting with a lot of different things, and he he was screwing ar- around with things that are affected by magnetism and all that. And he came up with this thing. Now you have to look it up, and you have to like see what it looks like. And you know, there's a lot to read about it. He started to pick up some radio signals through this thing, and it heavily distorts the signals. And he actually thought, first off, it completely spooked him out. And he thought he was listening to the first, you know, human to hear an alien transmission. Cool. Yeah, he really got scared by this thing. And he, and he, he, he wrote this, I read this huge article that he wrote about it, um, which was really interesting. This, you know, I didn't even realize how much that he had, he wrote down like his observations and, and things that he thought about. But you know, at what point at one point he says, uh, even now at times I can vividly recall the incident and see my apparatus as though it were actually before me. My first observations positively terrified me, as there were there was present in them something mysterious, not to say supernatural, and I was alone in my laboratory at night. So yeah, he got freaked out by this thing. 
And then, of course, it turns out that he was picking up radio signals and things like that. Very cool. Very cool. Very interesting man. The like, spirit it would be coil. great oh. for a um, haunted house, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Because it would oh, yeah. always be different. Yeah. Right, Bob? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm researching it now. This was sent in by a listener named Jim Fisher last week. Thank you, Jim. So um, I I just decided that this week I wanted to – I think a lot of people are going to guess this, but I wanted to uh, pay homage to this person and just tell me – you know, email me and tell me who this is. You know, people have been criticized and jabbed at and talked about throughout the ages for having different beliefs. And apparently I am no exception. Although it is a constant challenge, I will continue. I will not allow them to stop me. I know you guys know who that is. Yeah, we yeah, know. Yeah. Who that is. Oh, yes, yes, but, yes. But it's uh, a good one. Yeah, I thought I'd, I thought I'd play that because there is an interesting story here. Something definitely worth talking about. So write to me at wtn at theskepticsguide.org with your guess and please with your awesome noises that you heard this week. Thank you, Che. All right, couple of emails. These are both follow-ups to things we, we brought up uh, last week. Uh, the first one comes from Warren Young from Aztec, New Mexico. And he writes, Kara began the segment on coolness, talking about the evaluation about the evolution of the meaning of the term cool. Then later in the segment, she poked fun at one of the study's authors named Nimrod. The thing Hmm. is, Nimrod was not originally a derogatory term, but in fact a compliment. Nimrod was a descendant of the biblical Noah, cited in the Old Testament as a great hunter. People began using that word as a complimentary allusion, calling someone a Nimrod was a compliment to their skill as a hunter. Then, as language evolved, people started using it sarcastically. The classic, though not first, example of this is Bugs Bunny calling Elmer Fudd a poor little Nimrod. From this, we get people confusing the meaning of the term, taking it as a simple insult. So that is, so that in subsequent usage, only the insulting sense remained current. The name of the scientist co-author of that paper had a Levantine-sounding name, so I would guess that where he comes from, Nimrod continues to be a a salubrious term since it remains (laughs) a stronger cultural reference there. Very cool. So I love that. And it, it, it parallels the edgy thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the other email, we had, I'm not going to read a specific one. We had a bunch of responses about the, I said that to my, to my daughter's, uh, social group, the word edgy just means fake or poser. Um, and it's a similar kind of, a lot of people pointed out there's a very similar kind of evolution here that first a word means something positive, then it gets overused or it gets used sarcastically. And then that turns it into an insult. And then the original meeting is lost and only the insult remains. And of course, because we are constantly going through new generations, the younger generations don't even know the original positive meaning of the word. So like my daughter had no idea what edgy originally meant. She just knows it now as you know, the sarcastic use of the term or the ironic use of the term edgy to meaning someone who's trying to be edgy, but they're not. Therefore, they're fake. They're they're a poser. They're just they're not pulling it off. That's very interesting. So that, the same thing apparently happened over a longer period of time with Nimrod, and I think probably that Bugs Bunny uh, episode probably had a lot to do with it because you know Bugs Bunny calling some yeah. calling Elmo Fudd a Nimrod certainly sounds like an insult, at least in in English. Uh, but what's funny, I what I was thinking about is so like to me the word Nimrod 
sounds like an insult. Yeah, yeah it, does. it does. And the, the question I had was, is that only because I've associated it with an insult? Or is there something about the word? Is it because it sounds funny? And you can yeah, never know for sure. It's hard because there are there's a phrase for, or a term for that that's that's escaping me right now where words can sound negative or they can sound mean or they can and yeah. it's actually a good tool when you're taking a GRE or something and you don't right. know what the word means you actually have a better chance of getting the answer right if you go with how it feels like it means but you're right if that's a social construct because it's similar to other words in our lexicon or if there's something intrinsic about language I think it's the association think of other words that are that sound similar at the very end tightwad stewnod I mean, you know, I, no, seriously, I think that, I think it sounds so similar to that, that it, to, to these other, you know, denigrating words that, yeah. Uh, yeah. But Noam Chomsky, if, if, if Noam Chomsky taught us anything, it's that there is some weird intrinsic grammar. There is some weird yeah. intrinsic stuff w- that we're surprised by when it comes to language. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's sort of an amalgamation of the two. Well, I'm just speculating here too, but you know, what, what might be happening is words might migrate. Mm-hmm. To a place where they they feel like they belong, right? Mm-hmm. So things that have that sound might, over time, evolve into be, being used there. I'm just making that up, but it seems no, like yeah. Like if there's idea. a if there's cromulent. a po- yeah, it seems cromulent. If there's a positive word that um that just sounds like an insult, at, with time people might not use it as often as as a different positive word instead. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, the Dollar Shave Club. You know, when I was uh, a teenager, I barely needed to shave. And as I get older, my, my beard just keeps coming in thicker. And I a milestone happened, guys, in my life. I had to upgrade how many razors I get from Dollar Shave Club. I'm getting like two packages a month now instead of one. <laughs> you so hairy. Wow. Welcome okay. to puberty, Jay. <laughs> DollarShaveClub.com delivers amazing razors right to your door for a third of the price of what the typical razor companies charge. That means when you join Dollar Shave Club, you can afford to shave with a fresh blade anytime you want, which feels – come on, guys. a new. There's nothing like a new razor. And you can try Dollar Shave Club's executive blade. And when you use it, use it with Dr. Carver's shave butter so the blade will just gently glide for you and give you the smoothest shave ever. It's like butter. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. What if you just took a stick of butter and rubbed it on your face? Would that work? No good. <laughs> also, don't eat the shave butter. And ladies, don't forget the Dollar Shave Club is not just for men. You can use their razors, especially the executive razor, on your legs, on your underarms. It works just as well as any of those silly pink razors that are marketed to you in the store. And Dr. Carver Shave Butter is, is perfect for your legs. So now's a great time to join Dollar Shave Club. Any new members who buy a tube of the shave butter that Evan loves, you'll mm. get a uh, a month of the executive razor for free. That's actually a really good good deal, guys. You could try out both of these things right now. So take advantage of this special offer. It's available by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash skeptics. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Joining us now is Grant Ritchie. Grant, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Well, it's great to be here. I really appreciate you having me on. It's good to have a dentist we can go to whenever we are in a dental conundrum. (laughs) (laughs) And this week, 
I definitely, no question, I think that the science news story that has been blowing up the internet perhaps more than <laughs> any other huh. is this review that alleges that flossing your teeth doesn't work. And yeah. so many people have asked asked us what we think about that, so we are passing it along to you. What do you think? Yeah, they're not talking about the quantum computer discovery. No, they're talking about flossing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, my question to you all is, why are we bashing a soft target like flossing when we could be <laughs> stopping the war in the Middle East? I know, right? <laughs> We're looking for Bigfoot. Yes, something, something really important. No, but, but seriously, that I don't know why this is blowing up now because it reared its head uh, last fall. Uh, it made a news outlet, and, and I did a post on Science-Based Medicine blog about it. Mm-hmm. And then, Steve, if you recall, two years ago when you spoke at the ADA conference, we were mm-hmm. talking about the uh, systematic reviews even back then. And yeah. when I was on uh, your show May of 14, I think, we talked about it then. So um, I don't know if it was just a slow news day at the New York Times or what, but yeah, it has exploded. And of course, uh, my my virtual phone has been ringing off the hook. <laughs> but in general, it's one of those things that I do think it's an attention grabber because, you know, we've all been told by our dentists and our dental hygienists that you've got to floss and and as the person on the other side of the chair you know we admonish our patients you're not flossing well enough and and you really need to or else you're going to get cavities and else you're going to get gum disease and the research really does not back that up there have been uh some systematic reviews and one Comparing, doing a systematic review, meta-analysis of studies that uh, evaluate how flossing might reduce dental decay or dental caries, and another on the effects of flossing on periodontal disease um, or gum disease. And the fact is, is it's not real robust of an effect. But I think where the journalists miss the point and the people reading these studies miss the point is it speaks to two things. One is just the, the evidence isn't very good there. You would think that with something as basic as flossing, there would just be reams of, of research, but there's really not very good research out there. But the- Can I say, though, that that's actually what we find a lot, is that for things that are so basic that everybody just assumes that they're true or that they've it's been the standard of care for decades, there's often very little research because, it's first of all, it's a little hard to do research on something that's already the standard of care because Essentially, you'll be asking study patients to not do something, which is standard of care. Hmm. And plus, most people think it's not necessary because we already know it works. So that's exactly – you may seem ironic, but in medicine as well, it's like the things that – that you would think are the most solid sometimes are the things that have the least amount of research because they're just taken for granted. No, that's a good point because it's just received wisdom that we've all gotten for generations of, of dentists going through dental school. And, and it's also just so blindly obvious on its face. It's, it's unequivocal that dental plaque or the biofilm, the organized colonies of bacteria f- that form on teeth is disease causing. It causes tooth decay, it causes gum diseases. It's in, uh, unequivocal. Flossing, brushing removes that. So, I mean, it's a pretty short causality chain there. So mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense. But the other thing it speaks to is just how journalists spin this. Because if you really tease apart the meta-analysis, uh, especially in the, in the one about dental decay, one of the studies, they evaluated the effect of flossing on 
cavities when it was done professionally. For five days a week, I think it was either dental students or dental hygiene students or maybe even hygienists, would actually floss the children's teeth every day. So it was done properly. It was done well. And over that time period when it was done well, decay rates were reduced 40%. Oh. Right? That's huge. Hmm. That's there you huge. Go. Huge. And so, obviously, if flossing wasn't effective, it wouldn't matter how it was done. It wouldn't work. And so when they say in these headlines uh. that flossing is ineffective, what they should say is Flossing poorly is ineffective. <laughs> ineffective uh-huh. flossing is ineffective. <laughs> ineffective flossing. What a shock. Um, so I think that is the big disconnect. And flossing is oh. a pain, and flossing is difficult to do properly. And, uh, you know, the author of the, of the New York Times article, even at the very end, says, so maybe perfect flossing is effective. I mean, she even stated that, yet the headline was, are you feeling guilty about not flossing? Maybe there's no need. And yeah. I just don't so they don't they don't write their headlines. They don't yeah. write their headlines, which yeah. is obvious. And <laughs> are, are there any risks involved with flossing? What harm could possibly come from flossing? What's the risk benefit ratio here? It, in reality, almost zero. You can get a little aggressive. I think we've all probably popped a floss through our teeth a little too forcefully and cut our gums and caused a little bleeding. Some of the articles on this that were released last year said that if you floss too vigorously, you could actually cause a bacteremia. You could force the bad bacteria into your bloodstream where it could travel to your heart and your brain and you could, you know, die. And, you know, bacterial endocarditis, those type of things are possible. I don't know if there are any case reports of that being due to flossing. So really, except for those egregious potential problems, there really aren't any risks at all. Well, to be fair, I mean, you could cut your gum, and then if you put some radioactive polonium on that cut, you are screwed. Yes, you that are screwed. Yeah. Very true. And, and and I will say that the ADA just recommends using polonium when there is no visible open wound. Let me write that down. Yeah, yeah. They definitely recommend the polonium-free toothpaste. Yes, finally. Grant, let me ask you a question. So my sense, too, from looking at the the studies, a lot of the studies are brushing versus brushing plus plus flossing. Right. And you could argue that, well, maybe if you brush – if you do a good job at brushing, there just isn't that much left for the flossing to do. So it's hard to document statistically – a benefit when you're not leave, really leaving much room for benefit. And then you'd have to really do a good job of flossing to get that extra benefit after a, doing a good job brushing your teeth. Maybe people are just better at brushing their teeth than they are at flossing. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and it's definitely a possibility. And I don't think they can really control for how well someone is brushing their teeth. And a toothbrush will not get in between the teeth very well, no matter how well you do it. At least a, a conventional manual toothbrush. Some of the of the sonic toothbrush, which has ultrasonic waves, do do a better job just because it transmits a, that uh, force wave through to the liquid in the in the gum tissue. But uh, yeah, that baby. is a good point. The other point I'd like to to that struck me was I I totally get what you're saying about good flossing being effective. But there is something to be said for doing an intention-to-treat analysis, meaning what is the effect of telling people to floss? 
And it sounds like that that's where the problem is, that telling people to floss, instructing them to floss doesn't result in good effective flossing. And so that as an intervention, telling people to floss as an intervention isn't very effective. Doing a professional job of flossing their teeth is effective. But what do we do with that information? Now, that's an excellent point because because most people really probably have never been taught how to floss properly. And I would say I'm guilty of that. You need to floss more, but, but I rarely sit down with someone and show them exactly how. So I think that's a good point. And another, another thing back to the periodontal disease in flossing, the meta-analysis of, of that study did show that it reduced gingivitis. So just gum inflammation. That's not bone loss. That's not anything more serious. But periodontal, periodontitis, which is actual bone loss, which can really get serious and cause tooth loss, can often take five to 30 years to develop. So in the scope of some of these studies, there really wasn't enough time that you could really study it over that long a period mm. of time. So mm. I still think that that's a weakness of that. Bottom line is you could watch video online to see how to floss. Um, you know, your dentist really needs to show you, but to see, to actually see someone do it on a video versus having the dentist sitting in the chair telling you, I think sometimes people will do a better job if they watch a video. But, you know, you have many opportunities during the day to put some floss in your mouth and practice a little bit. I mean, you're obviously trying to scrape stuff off of the, the part of your teeth that are under the gum line. But my God, everybody, get out there and learn how to floss if you don't know how to floss, for Christ's sake. It just seems crazy to me that. <laughs> I mean, when I go to the dentist, the hygienist flosses my teeth when she cleans them, and she always does it with a mirror. Is that not common practice? I can see her doing it, and she talks so, about it while she's doing it. She says, you know, you have to make a little C going to either direction around your tooth every single time and get down under the gums. Like, that's the appropriate way to floss. And she shows me. See, that's excellent. You have an excellent hygienist because I don't oh. think that's – I mean, we do that as well, but I don't think a lot – uh, of dentists and dental hygienists do. But I would even take that one step further is that then she should have you demonstrate it and critique you. And it, and I think just like anything, we get busy. There's only so much time that we can spend. You know, most people, we kind of feel like we're imposing, like, okay, we're going to watch you floss. And I go, crap, I just want to get out of here. But um, I think that's the next, I think what she's doing is great because you can actually see that. But then that does not necessarily translate in your ability to do that. And there are some people, people with arthritis, people with poor coordination skills, elderly, things like that, you know, you can show them all day long and they're just not going to have the dexterity to get yeah. that done properly. And so there are other A's. There are the little interproximal brushes, the little Christmas tree looking brushes. There are, you know, the Sonicare type toothbrushes. So there are aids that you can get in between the teeth, even if you are unwilling or unable to to get there with floss. Grant, what do you think about toothpicks? They're great. If you can use them properly, a lot of people just end up stabbing themselves with them Um, (laughs) because you know but if you can get in there with the toothpick and the space is wide enough and and you're gentle absolutely what i would recommend is chew on the end of it a little bit make it softer and a little bit flatter so it has some give to it so you're not just driving a wooden stake into your to your gums but you can work it in there because you work into you know a little bit of a a soft i don't want to say pulp but because it's not that soft but you can get it in there and yeah it'll do a decent job of cleaning between your teeth. And I think what a lot of people need to realize is you, you need to do it correctly, but also it's the, the plaque, the microorganisms that 
remain on your teeth for an extended period of time that causes the harm, either either with gum disease or with dental decay. And that plaque becomes organized, and they, they work as a unit, all these... The biofilm, dozens, right? The biofilm, yeah, the hundreds or dozens of, of species of bacteria and viruses and fungal organisms, and they create acid and they work together. And so just by going in and disrupting this, just kind of kicking down the anthill, mm. very often is what keeps them from organizing and being able to do their damage. I would hope that these articles that, you know, I'm sure the ADA spokespeople are getting sick of being called. It's just like somebody do some good research now. Maybe this is an impetus yeah. that, will, right, yeah, right. you know, dental schools and dental hygiene programs and, you know, a lot of it is is corporate funded, just kind of by necessity. There are the, it's the floss manufacturers and the, the crests and the Colgates of the world that are going to fund this because they want to show that their product is best. And that doesn't necessarily negate it as being good research, but you know, people can claim conflict of interest, but even then they, yeah, they can definitely fund some good research just to put this thing to rest one way or the other. Hey, all right. Well, Grant, thanks for joining us and setting us straight about all the new hubbub about flossing. Well, you're welcome. I really appreciate you all having me on. And anytime you want to talk teeth, look me up. As a skeptical dentist, you do an awesome job of preventing truth decay and dumb disease. So oh, thank you very no. much. <laughs> oh, Evan, my God, did you oh. just pick that up? That's awesome. Evan's that, been waiting to say that this whole interview. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, that is a t-shirt. Thank you. That that made my whole visit here worthwhile. You're welcome. Because otherwise, it's a waste uh, of time. <laughs> I, had, I had so many better things to do. No, it's been one. It's been wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate it. All right, you thanks, too, Brett. Okay, Thank night. You. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Loot Crate. Guys, I actually have a funny story. I, I overheard my younger daughter talking to my wife the other day. And she was asking if she could order Loot Crate. And she, by coincidence, they had just become our latest sponsor. So I said, hey, Autumn, don't worry about it. I totally got you covered. <laughs> they now are her sponsor to the SGU. And she was floored. <laughs> but she was, she was really frivolous. She, you know, she heard about Loot Crate and she totally wanted it. Yeah, guys, Loot Crate is awesome. It's this monthly subscription box service, and it's really specialized towards geeks, gamers, kind of cool pop culture, what we consider cool pop culture. And every month you get really cool stuff for a low price. You always get a new t-shirt. There are a lot of fun toys, a lot of cool artwork. My favorite thing is I'm a big sock collector and I've gotten so many cool pairs of socks from, you know, Marvel or Harry Potter or whatever franchise you're interested in. For less than $20 a month, you'll get six to eight items, including licensed gear apparel, collectibles and unique one of a kind items and even more than that. Here's how it works. You have until the 19th of each month at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So get your order in by the 19th. Make sure you head to lootcrate.com forward slash skeptic and enter the code skeptic to save $3 off on any new subscription. From bad guys doing good things for the wrong reason to good guys with questionable tactics, August mm-hmm. is the perfect time to explore the anti-hero, walk-the-hero-villain line with this 100% exclusive collection of items from DC Comics, Archer, yay, Archer, Dark Horse, and Kill Bill that include two great collectibles, a wearable, and of course, our monthly tea, plus the pin. Don't forget the pin. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. 
It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake rooney and I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to give their critical analysis and insight as to which one is the fake. And you guys have swept me two weeks in a row. So we'll see how you cool. do this week. Oh, you see, he's trying to put the pressure on us. We'll see. Not not saying I made it deliberately harder this week because of that or anything. I'm just – Uh-huh. We'll see what happens. Okay, here we go. Item number one, a new review of a large set of online data – finds there is a large incentive to encourage and even fake five-star reviews, which significantly increase the profitability of products. Item number two, scientists have for the first time documented that some birds can sleep in flight, allowing them to stay aloft for weeks at a time. And item number three, a new study on mice finds that Cow's milk with 100 times the estrogen found in even the highest estrogen content in commercial commercial milk did not affect blood estrogen levels or have any measurable biological effect. Jay, go first. A new review of the a large set of online data, Steve, and they find that there's an incentive. My God, people are faking five-star reviews? No way. Um, I absolutely believe that a lot of companies fake five star reviews for obvious reasons, and it's and they're in fact, um, Steve. What if I know a lot about this but don't didn't read the article? That's fine. Go for it. Yeah, that means you don't know the news item. Yeah. That yeah, happens to me. That happens to me every week, Jay. Yeah. Go, go, go. I with. know this is a novel experience for you, but we'll. <laughs> <laughs> the real deal here is that um, there are companies that you can pay that will do. Dozens of fake reviews for you. I mean, it's it's quite easy to get done. That's why Amazon has its certified reviewers that are you know people that Amazon you know has found a way to vet out that they can trust that they're real people, real shoppers. You know, it's because they're buying products and they can link the reviews to the product buying. But yeah, I, I absolutely uh, believe that one. So that one is absolute science. Uh, scientists have for the first time documented some birds can sleep in flight. This one is also science. Uh, there are some migratory birds that um, that fly far distances, and they they you know I wouldn't say it's like you know deep snoring sleep, but it's probably like more of like that shark, like half of their brains asleep type of situation. But yeah, I think that one is science as well. So just by default, this last one about the the mice and the milk and the cows and a hundred times and the estrogen and the measurable bio- biological whatever that's got to be fake. Okay, Bob. The 100 times estrogen, it sounds like a lot, but I, it, the simple reason why this is possible is that gastric juices can just decimate the estrogen or even more than decimate, just totally wipe it out. To me, that seems like, yeah, that seems like a very plausible way that this, that, that how this could possibly happen. I mean, gastric juices are, they're nasty, man. It's, it, it dissolves your food. I mean, sure. I mean, lots of drugs. Uh, can get through, but perhaps uh, estrogen, estrogen and milk can be kind of waylaid by the by the gastric juices. Possibly that. I mean, that's how I could justify that in my mind. Number two, birds sleeping in flight. I could, yeah. I mean, do, uh, dolphins do it every day. They half their brain is asleep, and, and then the other brain goes to sleep, and that. But they could still keep operating on some basic level enough to at least swim and. Maybe get away from predators. So, All right, well, let me so, say though that I know I didn't say this for Jay, but uh, this is full sleep, not half of their brain at a time. 
Interesting. So what does it mean that you even said that to me? Does that... <laughs> uh, damn, full sleep. Full sleep. Oh, what would that mean? All right, well, you're flying. So you it does, this doesn't... You, you don't have to do a lot, really, except just kind of keep flying. Just flap your wings to to a sufficient extent. You don't... It's not like you need to... Ugh, all right, I'll just keep going. Now, the the top one, though, the, the, this, the, uh, the fake five-star reviews... I, I agree with what Jay said that I absolutely, I don't know, I don't know specifically, but I absolutely buy that, that companies will pay people to give five star reviews. The thing that, that really gets me here is the significantly increase of prof- profitability. First off, how do you test that? How do you even know that, that it has a significant contribution? Also, I think a lot of times, um, whether you see a movie or not, I think will be based on not just regular people's reviews, but you've got some favorite, favorite reviewers, you know, Roger Ebert, whatever. Bob, it's not, this is talking about products, not movies. What? Products, <laughs> products. Oh, wow. Just yeah, buying well, products you, online. Just buy, I'm sorry. Buy, that just, just blows me out of the water. Okay. That's different then, isn't it? Um, yeah, that, that, that is, that is different. I don't know why. When I see five star review, I think movies. I didn't, wasn't even thinking of products. Shit. Then yeah, that makes total sense. Um, okay. I'm buying now. I buy all three. So, okay. They're, they're all, they're, I think they're all science. So I think you really <laughs> tricked us. Um, right, I'm going to go with the milk. What the hell? Jesus, they all sound good. And Kara. This one's tough because just like uh, the other guys, I think that all three of them on the face seem like they could be science. And I think all three of them have aspects of them, which are probably science. I'm going to go backward. Um, a mouse study finds that cow's milk with even 100 times the estrogen found even in the highest estrogen content in commercial milk did not affect blood estrogen levels or have any measurable biological effect. That seems completely reasonable to me. Um, I think it's always a big fallacy that somehow just like ingesting something and all of a sudden you'll incorporate it into your own physiology or your own biology. I'm going to say that that one is science. Scientists have for the first time documented that some birds can sleep in flight, allowing them to stay aloft for weeks at a time. This also seems like science. Um, it's long been speculated that birds can sleep in flight. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe we've just now gotten documentation of that. Um, so I'm going to say that that one is also science. Shit. So that kind of leaves me with this last one. And here's, here's my thinking. A l- new review of large, of a large set of online data finds that there's a large incentive to encourage and even fake five-star reviews, which significantly increase the profitability of projects. I think all of that ostensibly is true. I think companies will encourage people to rate them high. I think they'll even give them free products in exchange for a high review. Um, but I also think that the FTC requires... And I only, I could be wrong, but when I talk to brands about doing brand deals with them, there's a lot of legal stuff around you having to disclose that. And so I'm wondering if maybe even though it's incentivized, it's also more incentivized to not break the law. Um, I don't know. I'm going to, this one's really hard, but I want to go with no one on this one and say that the five-star review one is the fiction. Good. So you guys are all over the place. I guess- the, un- <laughs> the unintentional theme here was that these were just difficult to parse news items. And I understand that these were a little complicated, but let me, let's break them down. Let's go in reverse order. 
Start with Uh-oh. number three, a new study on mice <laughs> finds that cows milk with 100 times the estrogen found in even the highest estrogen content in commercial milk did not affect blood estrogen levels or have any measurable biological effect. So just to clarify, if you take the commercial milk that has the highest estrogen content, you guys got this, right? And then you increase that by 100 times, there still isn't a biological effect when that's fed to mice. This one is science. Yay. Uh, Bob and Jay are wrong on this one. So, and it has nothing to do with gastric juices, although that's not <laughs> an unreasonable guess. But what do you I'll think? So, it. if it has absolutely nothing to do with gastric juices, what might it be due to? And let me give you another hint. When they did the same test, but they increased the estrogen level to a thousand times, then it did have a biological effect. Okay, so a hundred times no effect, a thousand times. So I don't know, maybe it's a feedback mechanism. Like at a certain point, your pituitary weight. No. At a certain point, that okay, fuck. On the wrong track. <laughs> All right, so it's overwhelming the. I'll um, put you out of your misery. The immune so, system or something. No, it's overwhelming something, not the immune system. You're right. It's overwhelming something. What it's overwhelming is the liver. Gastric juices. No, <laughs> the liver. It was the liver. So okay. you guys familiar with the first pass effect, the portal blood supply? So no. there are there are veins which drain your intestines and and bring that blood to the liver before it's brought to the rest of the body. The purpose of, of that is so that your liver can have the first crack at anything that gets absorbed into your through your GI system and can detoxify it before it goes cool. to the rest of your system. Mm-hmm. That's called the first pass effect. And so nice. we, we have to be aware of this with drugs, for example, that are that are rapidly metabolized by the liver, may never get to their target. You know, they get absorbed in the gut. They get metabolized by the liver. They never get unmetabolized to the rest of the body. So what, so that, so that's what's going on here. You are absorbing the estrogen from the milk, but it's being completely metabolized by the liver unless you overwhelm your liver's ability to metabolize the estrogen. Uh, but you, but the, the liver can metabolize a hundred times even the highest estrogen content in commercial milk, which, by the way, comes from pregnant cows, right? So they will milk cows up to their third trimester, and the pregnant cows have higher estrogen levels in their milk. Um, but even if you, but even a hundred times more than that, your liver has no problem completely detoxifying the estrogen from the from the the blood before it gets to the rest of your body. But the if you go to rocks. a thousand times. That overwhelms the liver's ability. The first pass effect isn't completely taking care of it. And then you start to get the estrogen effects on the liver. The liver sucks. Yeah. The liver's <laughs> no, good. the liver's awesome. But you can max it out. You can't overwhelm your liver's <laughs> ability to metabolize things. So, yeah. Cool. That's very cool. All right. Yeah, interesting. We'll go back to number two. Scientists have, for the first time, documented that some birds can sleep in flight, allowing them to stay aloft for weeks at a time. Evan, you think this one is the fiction? Kara, you think this one is science, and this one is science. science. Yes! Congratulations, Kara. Nice. Kara, nice job. So it's like micro, is it micro-sleep, Steve? They, they go through a series of micro-sleep events? micro-sleep, maybe mini-sleep. So what yeah. they found out is these are frigate birds they did the study in. Frigate birds, birds will stay aloft for actually months at a time. Uh, at when they migrate. Uh, because they can stay aloft for months at a time, 
it pretty much scientists fi- figure they probably are sleeping at some point. Yeah. But they oh, wow, never they've never documented it. And but there are birds who can be functional even with long periods without sleep. So it wasn't necessarily uh, a foregone a conclusion. Right. Yeah. So they they attached little devices to them and measured their brain waves while they were flying and they found that like dolphins, like what you guys pointed out, they will one of their hemispheres will go asleep at a time, but they will also both hemispheres will go asleep at the same time. They will have bihemispheric sleep. When frigate birds are on land, they will sleep for about 12 hours a day. When they're on the wing, they will have bihemispheric sleep for only about 42 minutes per day. So it, these birds are probably profoundly sleep-deprived for months. How do they not, how do they not fall out of the sky? When exactly. So hemispheres? that's still – it's still not clear. It's not clear how they can remain functional even while they're so profoundly sleep deprived, maybe because the one hemisphere sleep is really adding enough. They're power sleeping. But how, when both hemispheres go to sleep, do they not fall out of the well, sky? Well, they're, because they're, they're gliding. They're just oh. riding the drafts. You know, they're just not even moving. Really? Uh, yeah. Not, not, they're not like a sleep flapping? No, I think they're just <laughs> gliding. Like when my dog runs in his sleep. <laughs> yeah. Chasing. Something. I think that it's not so much of a mystery how they could maintain a loft while sleeping because it is they're just they're just gliding the updrafts. What is it? What this? The scientists are more interested in how they could be so functional while they're so sleep deprived. So even when they're awake, they have to hunt. You know, they have to find where the fish are and and get them and eat while they're while they're migrating. And how could they function so highly when they're so profoundly sleep deprived? So. Hmm. Clearly, they've adapted to this, but it'd be interesting to know what the mechanism of that adaptation is. It's a pretty extreme adaptation these frigate birds have. Be on the wing for 24-7 for weeks, maybe even a couple of months, just catching little catnaps. That's that's awesome. Yeah, Yeah, it's fascinating. Still being functional. Yeah, totally fascinating. All of this means, of course, that a new review of a large set of online data finds that there is a large incentive to encourage and even fake five-star reviews, which significantly increase the profitability of products. I get the sense that some of you were thinking that in order for this one to be true, all that was necessary was that companies were faking reviews. But that's not what the item is saying. The item is saying that that there's an incentive for companies to fake reviews, that that's what the data shows, that there's an advantage to faking reviews. And this one, of course, is the fiction because what the data showed is that there isn't an advantage to faking reviews. Hmm. Any of you guys have a hypothesis as to how why that might be? I mean, I obviously had one, but it wasn't the right one. <laughs> no, you were totally off. I'll tell you, <laughs> let me tell you this. A very high percentage of people who purchase items online return those items. In fact, it could be high as 30%. And that wow. costs retailers money, 6 mm-hmm. to $8 per return. What they found wow. was that having a lot of five-star reviews did increase sales, but, but it, it also, increased, it also returns. increased returns and offset the profits of the increased sales. Yeah, that's why I had to say not not sales, but profitability, because it does increase sales. It doesn't increase profitability. So the the reason is that if 
if you overhype the product, right? If the person reading the reviews is like, oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, they're they're much more likely to be disappointed. Their, right. They their get, expectations are Yeah, their are expectations too high. are high. But if there are some negative reviews in there, then they buy it more with open eyes. They're not disappointed. They they have a more realistic expectation. Yeah, somebody somebody get. mentioned so, that that the color sucks or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it so makes a lot of sense. Shit. What I mean, obviously the so the the companies are therefore incentivized according to this data to have accurate reviews. Accurate reviews are the best thing. That, of course, if they're as long as their product doesn't objectively suck, right? So, the, <laughs> but you you. <laughs> If you, you can't completely compensate for a sucky product by putting your thumb on the scale and having fake reviews, you'll sell more of them, but then you're just going to get more returns. And in the end, it's not going to be worth it. Um, so yeah, you, you're better off just letting the chips fall where they may, you know, and then selling products to people who want it, but, but with honest reviews so that they won't be disappointed and they won't try to return it. Returns are still high, you know, because you know, people are buying it without physically having their hands on it, you know. So right, um, right. it's already a high risk, and, and it, anything that increases returns has a huge effect on the bottom line, on their profits, yeah. which is kind of nice to know, you know, that yeah. it's, there's actually a financial incentive for the reviews to accurately reflect the the products. That's that's uh, you know, I think just a happy accident of of the system. I don't think it was designed specifically to be that way, but it's nice that that it exists. So, you know, we, I don't think it's going to stop companies from giving into the temptation, this the somewhat simplistic temptation of you know buying or faking those five star reviews. My my giveaway is when it reads like sales copy. You know, like the yes, review yes. is yeah. this had this imparted great value, and you know, whatever. Like <laughs> nobody writes that way. Nobody talks that way about a product. That is an ad person. That is a clueless ad person. Not just, writing not just that an review. yeah, not just an ad person. A stupid one because come on, what do you think? <laughs> These people can suss that out. Yeah, but it makes me think that they are so up their own ass. You know that they are so lost in their own world that they don't realize how much that sounds like marketing speak, right? Yeah. Isn't that right? Isn't right. that the sense you get yeah. from that? It just sure. jumps out at me like this is a salesperson. They don't. Yeah, they, don't they can't see help that. themselves because yeah. they know all the they know all the key points and the language and the things that they, yeah. their marketing team thinks are the selling points. They're hitting these selling points like it's like oh man that is you hit it like a jot list you know. It's no way a customer wrote that review. Yeah, it's funny. All right, well, good job, Kara. Yay! What do I win? <laughs> you win the, my respect, which is very, very oh. difficult. It only lasts thirty and seconds. Fleeting. <laughs> and fleeting, <laughs> and fleeting. It's very evanescent. You win his <laughs> ephemeral respect. <laughs> so <laughs> it's already fading. I uh, uh, just want to remind remind our listeners that the SGU in its entirety will be at DragonCon this year in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, the first week, Labor Day weekend, basically Friday to Monday, uh, first weekend in September. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to do a live show from the stage. We're going to do a private show. We're going to be on a bunch of panels. We're going to be walking around and maybe we'll be in nerdy costumes. You never know. You never mm. know. Uh, we'll be selling some <laughs> swag. We'll be know. hanging out with our listeners, having a lot of fun. Uh, if you've never been to DragonCon and you're a nerd, it's something, something you got to do. Yeah, go. Yeah, you have to go, man. We this is we have a ton of fun whenever we go. This is you know bring I'm bringing my nerdy daughters with me. Love it. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of fun. Hey, uh, and because I noticed there was a little bit of confusion online, 
about this, but the SGU will not be at SciCon uh, this year. Uh, we were invited, just didn't work out. The schedules, blah, 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 everything just couldn't make – couldn't get all the ducks in a row, so we're not going to be able to make it this year. Um, hopefully, we'll be at a future one. So I just didn't want – there's a couple of people commented that they can't wait to see the SGU at SciCon. I don't want any of our listeners to be disappointed. So we will not be there this year, just to clarify that. All right. Well, Evan had a little bit of technical difficulty at the end of the show, which is why he did not appear in Science or Fiction, and I will cover the quote for him. Every person who has mastered a profession is a skeptic concerning it. And that was said by George Bernard Shaw. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Roger that. Sure, Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. 